Well, happy five years, PBC. You guys look good today, and uh, man, what a, a good way to celebrate just watching that video. Uh, I did not know that was going to happen on stage, and I still have to preach, so I'm going to try to hold it together uh, for us. But you just need to know, if you are newer to this church, BJ mentioned it, you could be here, Kyle mentioned it, you could be here for five years, five months. Uh, God is up to something special with Phoenix Bible Church, and what you just saw in that video is just a snapshot of God's grace and faithfulness in and through our church. You see, this week, I got a lot more pictures than that. Uh, like, I have pictures, people sent me pictures, and it was a big week of reflection, just thinking, okay, five years, God, you've done so much in five years, we can't show that in a two-minute video. And, and I had the privilege this week of just walking with some of our leaders and my family, my wife, and just thinking about all God's grace and faithfulness to us, and I just wrote down a few things that I'll share with you. Uh, we've seen so much in five years. One, we've seen the transition of locations. Uh, BJ mentioned that we've kind of been uh, at a couple different places. I, I don't have time to share this story now, but, but it is God's grace that we are in this location, not just as a building, but a kingdom outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ to move out in this city. And, and it's by God's grace that we are here, and we call this home. We've seen the transition of locations. We've seen new life. Uh, we've seen 40 baptisms in five years, uh, including the one we're going to see later in the service. 40 people, here's what that means. If you're not familiar with baptism, we've seen 40 people over five years celebrate going from death to life in Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen, we can celebrate that, yeah. Those are 40 stories of gospel transformation. If you are new, you need to know, this is why we started the church. We wanted to see these 40 people and way more people than that in the future experience the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and celebrate that through baptism. I love it today as we celebrate five years, we get to see that a little bit later in the service. We've seen new life. We've seen literally more baby dedications than I could count. Uh, we've seen couples who started dating and then got married and even had kids in the last five years. So single people, look around. You never know. Right? You never know what's going to happen. We've seen new life. We've also seen We've also seen the loss of life. Uh, in just short five years, we had a funeral in this building. And some of you were around for that about a year ago. And, and so we've seen new life. We've seen the loss of life. Uh, we've seen, not to that extreme, but we've seen just trials and hardships and ups and, and downs, and we've seen Jesus through it all. And you need to know, as your pastor, even the hard times, I'm thankful for. Even the loss, even though I don't always understand them, I'm grateful for them because I know that Jesus uh, has those things. James 1 tells us this, trials in your life that test your faith, that lead to perseverance, and that perseverance leads to maturity and completeness in Christ. And I know today as we celebrate five years, we wouldn't be where we are, we wouldn't be as mature as we are, as complete as we are in Christ if it weren't for the loss, right? And so I'm grateful for it all. Even this week, I did, I did shed some tears about the loss, but I'm grateful for it because I know God has a plan, and I know he's bringing a people together, an imperfect people through the new life, through the loss of life, he's bringing an imperfect group of people together through the perfect love of Jesus. 
And through all the, the good and the bad, he's, he's brought us together. And so as I, I look at my three little kids who are not as little anymore, as I talk to my wife, as I talk to friends in our church, so much that has happened has brought us together to strengthen us, to deepen our relationships, and to increase, listen, to increase our impact that much of the opportunities we've had have been because of obstacles, much of the purpose that we've experienced has been because of pain. And listen, that's not just in our church or in my life. That is the Christian life. That's the beauty of it is God uses even the battles to create blessing. Amen? And so our church is just a snapshot of that. We can't go through it all today, but I just want you to know I'm grateful. I'm grateful uh, to be your pastor. I'm grateful to raise my family here. I would want to come to this church even if I didn't work at this church. Right? <laughs> I'm grateful for what God has done in and through and around us. But as I thought about that this week, I thought, man, I'm just excited. This is just the beginning. I'm grateful for what God has done. I'm so excited what he is going to do. And I'm so excited, if you can just picture this with me, five years from now, as we celebrate 10 years, I can only imagine, like, what pictures are going to be in that video? Like, what what stories are going to be in that video five years from now? And I, I couldn't help but think like some of these faces that I'm looking at in this room, you're going to be in that video. And even if you don't make the video, you're going to be a part of the story. God is writing the eternal redemptive story that God is writing in and through Phoenix Bible Church. Some people in this room are going to be a part of that. Some people, this is mind-boggling, some people outside of this room that you don't even know yet, that I don't even know yet, they're going to be a part of it. And listen, that's why we are here. That's why the love of Jesus is moving us to move us out, to see more and more people experience and encounter the love of Jesus. So I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for what God has done. I'm excited about what he's going to do. Amen? Let's celebrate today. Let's celebrate through the reading of God's word, through the preaching of God's word, through baptisms later on. Uh, today we are in week four of a series called What is Love? We're taking an honest look at marriage and relationships. Today is love and conflict. And here's where we're going. If you'd like to take notes and know where we're going ahead of time, we are going to look at Colossians chapter three in the New Testament. And we're going to lay a foundation of the reality of conflict and the remedy of conflict and then we're going to take the, the ending time to look at what does biblical conflict resolution really look like? Right? We've experienced conflict as a church. We've seen it resolve. We've seen God grow us through that. You experienced that in your life. We want to see what does it actually look like because this isn't hypothetical conflict. This is real practical conflict. So we're going to look at a lot of Bible. We're going to look at a lot of practical steps of how we actually see resolution in conflict. So Colossians 3, if you want to grab a Bible now, uh, pull it up on your app and head there, mark it there. That's where we're going to start out. Uh, but I'll tell you this. Uh, last month, my wife and I celebrated 13 years of marriage. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, 13 years of marriage. But I can remember, it wasn't that long ago, 13 plus years, I can remember the season right before we got married. And all we did was talk about conflict. Like, that was our premarital counseling. It was all about conflict. Granted, only a couple chapters were covered by that in the curriculum, but the whole thing, finances, you talk about conflict. Communication, you talk about conflict. Sex, you talk about conflict. The whole thing, premarital counseling was conflict, conflict, conflict. Even the other married couples that we would go to in advance of our, our marriage and go to and say, hey, what's marriage like? And they would say things to us like this. They would say, hey, your wedding is really just picking someone else and looking across the way from them and picking them to fight with. 
for the rest of your life and putting a ring on it for that purpose. Right? Nobody ever thinks about that, but that, that was what it was talked about. That's what we talked about all the time as we led up to our wedding. Now, I will tell you this. I was uh, a little bit arrogant, a little bit self-righteous, and I remember during that same season, hearing all this talk about conflict and marriage, I remember talking to my future spouse and saying, babe, it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, maybe they don't have what we got. Maybe everybody else just doesn't really know what they're doing, and maybe we do. Like, it doesn't have to be hard. Well, listen, that mentality lasted up until my honeymoon. <laughs> Made it that far, right? You see, here's what happened. My wife is Indian. I've shared the story about our wedding before. It was a huge celebration. Think like people lifting us on their shoulders, like amazing music, dancing, the whole thing. It was an amazing celebration. But in an Indian wedding, you don't just celebrate during the wedding. You celebrate for the next two days. Like you stay with the family. Don't go on the honeymoon yet. You stay. You celebrate. Partly because, and in our case this was true, people had traveled across, across an ocean to see our wedding. And so you don't jet, that would be rude, right after the wedding, right? Now, I knew this, but again, I think I'm the exception. So what I did in my genius thinking is I planned our honeymoon and the flight to go to Mexico and Cabo San Lucas for our honeymoon. I planned it the next morning at 6.30 a.m. And so I think we get out of the wedding. I mean, it was a party, a massive party. It didn't end until after midnight. We had to drive an hour to our hotel. We had to get up at 4 a.m. to leave for our flight. And let me just tell you, we had some conflict, right? And not just we had some conflict, we had some conflict with her entire family, right? There was a little bit of conflict. And not only that, we showed up to Cabo San Lucas, and I realized I forgot my bathroom back. So we had to look for a store, and the only store we could find was a, a Costco, and we... We had to go to a Costco in Mexico and buy a Mexico Costco card because it didn't translate at the time. Maybe it does now, but at that time, it didn't. We had to pay for a membership to Costco to buy 10 bars of soap when I only needed one. <laughs> and let me just tell you, we had some conflict, and that was the honeymoon phase. We had some conflict, and let me just tell you, we were not the exception. And you aren't either, right? Here's the reality about conflict. Nobody can escape it. It's in every relationship. If you're dating and you think marriage is just going to solve all your problems, no, it's going to expose it, right? It's in marriage relationships. Like Jerry Maguire, Jerry Maguire, you complete me, that's not a good theology, right? It doesn't happen that way. You have conflict. You have conflict with, with your kids. You have conflict in every friendship, dating, every relationship, every church. So the question is not if, it's how. How? How do we respond when we face conflict? Here's what I know, and you know, we don't know how, right? We don't know how to respond. But if we're going to have loving and lasting relationships, we got to learn how to respond. we got to learn how to resolve conflict in a biblical and a godly way. So that's where we're going today. Our first point, if you take notes, is the reality of conflict. We need to see what are we up against, and we see that in Colossians 3, verse 8 and 9. Look at the text with me. This is the Apostle Paul. He says this, Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So 
This is the book of Colossians, and I know we're kind of parachuting in here, so I want to give you some context. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a fairly new church that has some false teaching that has crept in. A lot to the false teaching, there's Gnosticism and a lot of things going on there, but just simply put, these people, these false teachers were saying, hey, Jesus is not really God. Jesus is not really God, and because he's not really God, you can't just put your trust in Jesus and his cross and resurrection and expect to be made right with God. You have to do some other rules and abide by those rules and regulations and do all these other things to be right with God. And so what Paul does when he writes this this letter to the Colossians, these new believers, he says, hey, These false teachers, no, that's not true. The centrality of Christ, he is God, and the centrality of Christ, if he's God, is what you're saved by, it's what you're secure in, it's what you're sanctified by. And so if you read Colossians 1 and 2, and I I would submit to you, you should, you'll see the centrality of Christ. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God. He's before all things. He's the fullness of God in the flesh. And you see that in Colossians 1. You see in Colossians 2. Hey, don't abide by these rules and regulations. That's not what saves you and makes you secure. It's only in Christ. And so Paul lays out this theological centrality of Christ in Colossians 1 and 2. But then in Colossians 3, he gets practical. And the first way he gets practical is with relationships. All right, we talked about this last week. Pastor Chad Moore, go back and listen to the app or uh, the website or iTunes. He talked about a theology of relationships and that at the end, all that matters is God and people. That the whole story of scripture is relational, vertically between us and God, horizontally between us and other people. Love God, love, love neighbor. It's all relationship. And you see that even in Colossians 3. Think about this. Paul says, hey, Put them all away. What, Paul? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Hey, don't lie to one another. Put that off. Who's Paul talking to? Is he talking to people in prison? He's talking to Christians. Is he talking to people who have no thought of God, no knowledge of God? He's talking to a church, to believers, and he's telling them to put away not just anger, but wrath. He's saying, hey, you're Christians. This is who you are in Christ. You're saved, you're secure, you're sanctified in Christ, but you got some issues. And that even Christians, we need to put some things away. We don't always deal with conflict with one another correctly. And so Paul is going to challenge that. You see, here's the reality. We should not be shocked by conflict. Even as Christians, And maybe you have been at some point, maybe in a church, in your marriage relationship, in your friendship, somebody offends you, somebody betrays your trust, and you're shocked. Like specifically in marriage, we do this. We project savior onto spouse, And we think you are, Jerry Maguire, you are supposed to complete me, and the minute, the second you don't, how could you? Well, I know you're sorry, but how could you ever say that to begin with? You ever said that? You ever thought that even in a friendship? Like, you were supposed to be my my friend. How how could you wrong me in that way? And we're shocked by conflict because we have projected savior on spouse, savior on friend, and they can never live up to that. And so Paul is saying, hey, even you Christians, hey, put away the wrath. I'm like, I don't even know what that looks like, Paul. Like, what does it look like that Christians are having wrath towards one another, but they were, and Paul's saying, hey, that's not who you are. Put that away. There's a reality of conflict. If you look at the Old Testament, the book of Song of Solomon, 
This book is typically known as the sex book of our Bibles. It's the example, God's example of sexual romantic love. In fact, just a little plug, The Porch, Young Adults, this Tuesday night, 7 p.m., you're starting the book of Song of Solomon. Yeah, so get excited about that. Come back on Tuesday night to hear more about that. Next week, we actually love and sex is our next topic, so come back for that. But if you actually read the book of Song of Solomon, what you find is only one chapter is on sex. Two chapters are on conflict, which is true to life. That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) There's a reality of conflict, and so how do we respond to it? Paul mentions several things in malice and anger and wrath and slander. We respond in aggression. Paul lays that out. Some of you, you hear that. You think of some ways you respond angrily. You, You think of some ways you slander in the midst of conflict, and you respond in aggression. But I think a lot of us, we respond in avoidance. That if we look at Paul's list, we think, well, Tim, I, malice, like I don't even know what that means. Like I don't do, I don't do that. I don't, wrath, like I mean, I just, I speak my mind. Like I mean, I'll kind of passively, aggressively, like I'll send them a text that kind of says what I'm thinking and, and kind of serious, but then I'll put an emoji at the end. And then I'm just like, and they're like, hey, did you mean what you said? And you're like, no, did you see the emoji? Like it's not that big a deal. And some of you are passive-aggressive, and a lot of us, we, we avoid conflict. We're not aggressors in the midst of conflict. But here's what happens. We think if we avoid, the conflict will go away, but hope is not a strategy. Okay? What does the conflict do? You avoid it. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. It builds. Like water in a pot, it starts to boil, and it just slowly starts to boil, and that little conflict here and there, little conflict here and there, and it slowly starts to boil, and you leave it on, and it eventually blows up. Parents, it's like when you put the little toys away in the closet when people are coming over, and you just shove them in the closet, and about five or six times of, of putting those little toys in the closet, five or six times of doing that, eventually you open up the door, and what happens? It all falls down on you, Right? That's what happens when you avoid conflict. It's like if you go to your spouse in the bathroom and you say, hey, can you pick up your towel? Hey, you know what? Actually, you never pick up your towel. Like in the 13 years we've been married, I don't think you've ever picked up your towel once. And you know what? That's just like, you know how you didn't pick up my mom five years ago? And you were watching that game? And like, you don't pick up your towel and you don't pick up my mom. And like, I don't even know if we can be married anymore. And that little conflict begins to roll up into a massive obstacle in your relationship. And so avoiding it, just like being the aggressor in conflict doesn't make it go away, avoiding it doesn't make it go away either. You have to respond. So how do we? Let's look at the remedy for conflict. Colossians 3, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. He says, put on then is God's chosen ones. He says, holy and beloved. He reminds you, hey, Christ is at the center of the universe. He's at the center of your life. This is your identity. He says, you're chosen. God sought you out. He says, you're holy. God set you apart. He says, you're beloved. Literally, God loves you dearly. And then he says, so put this on. What Paul is saying is like everything in chapters one of two of Colossians, hey, this is who you are in Christ. You're holy, you're chosen, you're blameless. You're on team Jesus already. You just need to put on the uniform. You just need to put on the character of Christ. And that's what he goes on to talk about. He says, hey, put on compassionate hearts. 
That word hearts, it's really interesting in that, in that context is the same word as bowels and intestines. He's saying, hey, the compassion of Christ is one that isn't just like put on surface level, it comes from the depths of you like your intestines. And he says, hey, put on the character of Christ, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, the character of Christ. Verse 13, he says, bear with, one and, bear with one another in love. So we get our phrase, hey, bear with me. Hey, would you bear with me? Be patient with me. Be gracious with me. Stay with me. Bear with me. He says, if one has a complaint against one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Verse 14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so again, just picture, hey, you're putting on the clothes of Christ. You're putting on the, the character of Christ. So you put on all these things. But then Paul says, above all, put on love and bind it around you. This brings harmony. It's like all those clothes of Christ, kindness, humility, patience. Those are all the clothes. And love is the belt. It brings it all together. How do people know we are Christians? By our love. Right? So Paul says, you put on the character of Christ, you put on the love of Christ. And then verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. I love that it says, let not make. You see that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That if you are a Christian, here's your reality. You have the peace of Christ, even in the midst of conflict with your spouse and with that friend. You have the peace of Christ. How? Because it's within you. Because Christ is the prince of peace, so you always have his peace. And I love that Paul says, hey, just let it. Let it rule in your hearts. Don't make, you don't have to make it. It's already in you. It's like a beach ball in water. It wants to rise. If you know Jesus, you have the peace of Christ within you. Let the, the peace of Christ rule in your heart, reign in your heart, reign in your relationships. And Paul gives us, here's how you respond to conflict. Here's the remedy for conflict. We take our cues from Christ. But here's the reality. Often, many of us, we don't take our cues from Christ. We take our cues from culture with conflict. We take our cues from ourselves. And we don't realize, like, our feelings may be real, but they're not always reliable. And we respond out of our feelings. We, we don't see emotions should just be an indicator, not a di dictator. But I'm going to go ahead and let them dictate. You know what? Because you should have heard what she said to me. Or you should have seen what, what he did to me. You, you should see the way she didn't respond to me. And we have these feelings and we have these emotions and we take our cues from those instead of Christ. We take our cues from culture instead of Christ. We take our cues from the other person instead of Christ. Married couples, a surefire way not to resolve conflict, but just patch it up. A surefire way not to just peacemake in conflict and actually move forward in a healthy way is to just do what the other person wants you to do. You ever been there? Like, like, your spouse does want you to pick up the towel, so you're like, well, I know she's gonna yell at me, so I guess I'll do it. Hey, I, I know he gets really bothered if when he gets home, I ask him these questions after he gets off work, so I'm gonna think of a different set of questions because I don't wanna make him mad. If you're just taking your cues from the other person, it will not last. But if you take your cues from Christ, it will. 
because his standard never changes. It doesn't fluctuate. You don't have to guess what he is thinking like you have to do with your spouse. You don't take your cues from culture, yourself, the other person. You don't always take your cues from your parents. Listen, some of you, you have godly parents. They're in a godly marriage, and you go to them for advice. And listen, you should. But some of us, if we honestly just look at our parents' relationship, they're not believers. They're not joined together in Christ. Maybe they are. Maybe they kind of come to church and go through the motions, but it's just going through the motions. And if we're honest, the way we're responding to a spouse, to a friend, is the way my dad used to respond. And maybe you even said this, well, like, my dad's this way. Maybe you like that, maybe you don't, but maybe you've just become comfortable with it. And you're not taking your cues from Christ. You're taking your cues from your parents. And it's not working out. And just being comfortable with, well, that's just who I am. Look at my parents. Paul's saying, no, put those things off. Put on the character of Christ. That's the remedy for conflict. So I know some of you are in conflict right now. I know because my wife and I had conflict on Monday just to study and prepare for the sermon, right? I know my wife, I'm a pastor, and some of you are thinking, Tim, you don't, you don't know what conflict is like. Listen, I've been unfriended on Facebook too, right? I know what conflict is like. I'm a pastor, but I'm a person. I have conflict with my spouse. I've had conflict with some of you. I've had conflict in friendships. I know what conflict is like. You know what it is like. Some of you are thinking about conflict right now. Don't look around. It's easier said than done, isn't it? Well, just take your cues from Christ. Put on the character of Christ. Bind it together like a belt with love. Like in that conflict, in that relationship, in that friendship. Tim, that's easier said than done. Like we prayed and said amen and went home. I would be really discouraged. And so I want to give you some tools in your tool belt with scripture, with practical things to see what does this actually look like? What does biblical conflict resolution look like? You're going to want to take a picture of this on the screen or take notes and come back to this. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture and we're going to go through a lot of things. Here's the disclaimer I would make as we get into it though. If you are in a situation of abuse, if you are in verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse right now, this is not the sermon for you. That's a whole nother sermon. You need to, if you're honest about that, hey, I'm in some abuse right now, you need to get to a safe place. You need to tell somebody, a friend, a pastor, authority, and that's a totally different sermon. So this doesn't apply to that, all right? We're going to talk about biblical conflict resolution. Here's the first thing. Write this down. Don't mistake differences for weaknesses. Don't mistake differences for weaknesses. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 22 says this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Here's the reality. You need differences. Like in the church, we need differences. The body of Christ, we need differences. We need, a, we need an eye. We need a hand. We need a foot. We, we need differences. In your marriage, you need differences. In your friendship, you need differences. God created those differences. You're uniquely different from your spouse, from your friend. And maybe God brought about those differences to complement one another. Like we need 
the verbal processor, but we also need the internal processor, right? Like somebody's got to listen, right? We need both. We, we need the creative. We need the Excel spreadsheet person. You know who you are. We need the life of the party, but we also need the, the melancholy. We need differences in relationships. And listen, God puts you in that relationship and that marriage and that friendship and this church with people who are different than you, not to mess with you, but to refine you, to make you more like Jesus. Because if everything worked, if you were the exact same as the other person, you would, one, drive yourself crazy in a different way. But if you were the exact same, what would you need God for? What would you need prayer for? If everything aligned perfectly, like, hey, just the same personality, it's always honeymoon phase. If everything aligned perfectly, what do you need God for in your relationship? You guys got this. And so God may have put differences in the other person to make you more like Jesus. We need differences. I know for us, when we do marriage counseling, what we see typically is almost always people in a marriage, one spouse sees the other person's differences as weaknesses. So here's what we do. We take them through a strengths finder test and we have them both do it and we get their top five strengths and their top five strengths. And as we begin to go through those and try to point those out and like, see, like he's just like information is his strength. And she's like, yeah, I know he knows everything. I mean, he thinks he does. We're like, no, that's a, it's a strength, <laughs> strengths finder. Like, that can be a strength. Like, he's logical, and, and he does. He likes research, and he can research your vacations, and he can research your, your family. He can study you as a spouse and learn how to love you better. And maybe he doesn't do that, and maybe he needs to grow in that, but that is a strength. But you see it only as a weakness. And we do marriage counseling with this to show people, hey, you're only pointing out the weaknesses and never seeing things as strengths. Maybe they're just differences and not weaknesses. Maybe you shouldn't fight over every single one of them because maybe God put those in place on purpose. The second thing, ask, as conflict arises, ask, can I overlook this? You don't have to fight about everything. Proverbs 19, 11 says this, a person's wisdom yields patience, it is one's glory to overlook an offense. I've shared this before, but our first couple years of marriage were incredibly difficult. My wife and I fought all the time because we picked every hill to die on, right? And we just, every, every minor thing was a major thing, right? And we, we fought, we, we screamed and fought. We, we laid down on the bed and cried and fought. We whispered and fought. We, 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 we listened and fought. Like we did every, like we fought all the time our first couple years, and we had to learn to bear with one another. We had to learn to be patient with one another. We had to learn, like, it's one's glory to overlook an offense. Like, I don't have to bring up everything you said, everything you did. You have to pick a hill to die on. And let me just tell you, the way he pushes the toothpaste out of the tube is not that hill. Even though every sane person knows you're supposed to push it from the bottom, it's not the hill, right? The towel, probably not the hill. That little thing he said that one time, probably not the hill to die on, right? Don't, don't major in the minors. It's your glory to overlook an offense. Now, I know as I say that, some of you are thinking, okay, but that towel, <laughs> like, I mean, that's a repeated thing. Is, that, is there anywhere in the Bible where it says leaving your towel on the floor is sin, Tim? Like, how do we know? How do we know if we should overlook it? 
Here's a couple questions. Again, you can write these down. It's not on the screen, but you can write it down. How do you know if you can overlook an offense? Here's what you ask. Is this sin or is this preference? Like, honestly, if I just look at this, is, is he or she sinning against me or someone else? Or if I'm honest, it's just a difference or it's just a preference? Is it sin or is it preference? Second question, is this damaging the person's witness? Or is it damaging your witness from being associated with him or her? So your spouse is, is doing something, and if you're honest, man, it's, that's damaging your witness. Like people see you do that. People come over to our house and they see you act this way or do this or don't do this. It's damaging your witness as a follower of Christ. You don't need to overlook that. Maybe it's damaging your witness as their spouse, as their friend, and the people you ride with. That's an example of what you lead and the life you lead, and you need to bring that up because, hey, hey, I know you're doing this, and you think, hey, that just affects you, but that actually affects me. It damages my witness before other people. It causes other people to stumble. we got to talk about that. So those are some questions to ask. Can we overlook it? If you can't overlook it, the third thing when you address it, get the log out of your own eye first. It's Matthew 7, 5, Jesus says this. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That word hypocrite, Jesus is talking about, hey, in conflict, you're a hypocrite when you're far more tolerant of your own sin than somebody else's. You're far more gracious when it comes to your sin than when it comes to somebody else's. That some of us, we want grace for us, we want justice for somebody else. You been there? Jesus says, hey, you're a hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye. Ask the question, hey, there's conflict, like, I get it, and I get it. This person did something to you. Your wife said something to you that, that betrayed your trust, that was insulting to you, and, and it hurt. Like, your friend, gossiped about you and you're starting to hear about that from some other people and they weren't supposed to share that with you. Like I get, like it hurts, but, but take the log out of your own eye first before you point out the speck in their eye. Is there anything you need to own? Like even if it's just 10% and don't do math on them, like don't tell them like, hey, you own 90%, but I got 10%, I just, I wanna share that with you. Don't do math on them, but just know in your head like, I, man, I just, 1% of this though is me. Because I said that, I instigated that. I knew if I said this, she would do this. Like I knew how to, to cause that conflict and to stir that up. Psalm 139, you need to ask, God, in the midst of conflict, I got this beef with this other person. Psalm 139, God, search me though. Not search them, search me, know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways in me. And you need to take the log out of your own eye before you point out the speck in somebody else's eye. The next thing, discovery is greater than declaration. Colossians 3, we see we're to be kind, compassionate, and humble. Proverbs 18, verse 2, it says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Here's what we typically do in conflict. We give blanket statements, blanket declarations. You know these statements? Hey, you never do this. Hey, you always do this. Hey, you know what your problem is? And we give these powerful declarations, and here's what that does. You give these powerful declarations, how do you think they respond? I got some declarations of my own. Well, you never do this. Oh yeah, I never do that? When's the last time you've done that? 
You know what your problem is? And it goes on and on and on, and it's a never-ending cycle of declaration, declaration, and declaration. Try this. Discovery instead of declaration. Discovery is greater than declaration. Proverbs 18 says, hey, if you're only interested in making declarations, expressing your opinion, hey, you listen to how wrong you are, how prideful you are, how bitter you are. You're a fool. You need to try to seek understanding, even in the midst of conflict. And so instead of making declarations, try discovery. Try this. Again, write these things down. I may be missing something, but hey, I've noticed this. Hey, hey, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is something I've seen, like, and I'm just wondering about this. Hey, I love you, and I don't like what this is doing to you or to us. And allow some discovery to take place. Listen, you know this. You've made declarations over your spouse, over your friend, like, you are this, you never do this. That just creates defense mechanisms. They don't, at that point, you're not a safe safe person to investigate, to evaluate offenses, wrongs that they have done. Because you're just the one accusing them, attacking them. If you will come alongside them in love and help them to discover the conflict, help them to discover, hey, why is this going on in my life? Then you can bring about resolution. The next thing, don't qualify your apology. Get ready to be convicted. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. Psalm 51.17. Psalm 51 is a great chapter to read, to memorize. It's a psalm of repentance by David. You see a brokenness, a contrite heart in David, a picture of repentance. Specifically in verse 17 of Psalm 51, you see this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, repentance is laying before the other person, before God, your sin, not your excuse. Don't qualify your apology. Don't do this. Don't say, I'm sorry, but. Like, I do this with my kids all the time. Like, buddy, I'm sorry I yelled, but if you would just pick up your Legos, then I wouldn't have to do that. Is that an apology? No. Don't do this. I'm sorry that you got your feelings hurt. Listen, that's not an apology, that's a veiled insult. <laughs> you're saying, hey, you're a crybaby, so I'm like, deal with that. I'm kind of sorry. Don't qualify your apology. Just say, here, listen, it's really simple, let's practice it together. Just say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Let's practice it together, just for fun, right? <laughs> kind of one, two, three, we're gonna say, I'm sorry. Some of you are looking like, Tim, I'm not saying it. <laughs> and listen, that's why you struggle in relationships. Let's practice it together. One, two, three, I'm sorry I was wrong. One, two, three, I'm sorry I was wrong. Some of you mumbled. So you just like, I can't, I just won't. My vocabulary is extensive, but not when it comes to that. Listen, just saying, I'm sorry I was wrong. No but. No, I'm sorry. No veiled insult. Just saying, I'm sorry I was wrong can solve conflict. Your kindness as you repent leads somebody else to repentance, right? And so don't qualify your apology. Gary Thomas, this is in your study guide, a quote from this week. He's an author. He said this. He said, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. It's true, isn't it? 
We say we fall out of love, like I just don't really love him anymore. The reality is you got tired of repenting, right? Martin Luther, old theologian, said all of life is repentance. I, I think you could say all of relationships are repentance. Why? Because Holy Spirit-empowered repentance is not just the way for change with you and God. Holy Spirit-empowered repentance is the way for change and progress with the other person. Repentance is turning. You're turning from that sin, you're turning to God. You do that in relationship, you start to experience progress and change and resolution. And I know some of you are thinking, Tim, but if I just repent, if I apologize, if I, if I err on that side of things, if I don't debate it and fight it and give the excuse, if I don't do that, like, she will win. <laughs> like, he, like, you should have heard what he said to me. Like, I can't apologize for, for my 10%. Like, you should have heard what he did to me. I can't let him get away with that. I can't let him win. But a question I want to ask you is, what do you lose if you win? What do you lose if you win? Like, yeah, don't apologize, and you may win the argument, but you may lose your integrity. Yeah, don't, don't apologize. Like, don't err on the side of apology. Win the argument, but you may lose your, your, your relationship altogether. What do you lose if you win? Err on the side of apology. Don't qualify it. Say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Right? And trust God with that. Don't condition your forgiveness. Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Colossians 2, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He begins to explain what forgiveness is. He says, verse 14 of Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt. Here's a biblical definition of forgiveness, if you want to write this down. It's making a decision to cancel the debt. It's making a decision to cancel a debt. It's not canceling a debt because you feel like it. It's not canceling a debt because they have checked all the boxes for you to now you really appreciate me and you're really worthy of me forgiving you. No, it's, hey, I'm gonna make a decision to cancel a debt. Why? Colossians 3, we forgive how? Because the Lord has forgiven us. How has the Lord forgiven us? Colossians 2 says he cancels our debt on the cross. It literally says he nailed it to the cross. He made a decision to do that. Here's how he did that. Not because you said, I will never do that again. Not because he thought when you said that, oh, you want forgiveness? Like you'll never do that again? Okay, I'll cancel your debt then. He's God. He knew you were going to commit the same sin next week. But he died for all of your sin. He canceled it all on the cross, past, present, present, and future. Colossians 3, we forgive as the Lord forgave us. We make a decision to cancel the debt. Here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean there's no consequences. You know that in your relationship with God. You sin, there's consequence. Are you forgiven? Yes, but there's consequences. Somebody sins against you, you forgive them. It doesn't mean there's no consequences. Listen, it doesn't mean you don't have to rebuild that trust. Like, of course you do. There's consequences in relational sin, but you don't have to hold it over their head. Like there's a difference between bringing it up and like, hey, we still have to talk about this, and three years later, we're still in counseling for this, and maybe the spouse or maybe the friend is like, hey, when are you going to let this, this, this die? You may have to keep talking about it because there's consequences of sin, but you don't hold it over. You don't, in a tense moment, when you're experiencing other conflict, bring up that other conflict. 
from five years ago and double down because you canceled the debt. You forgave them, right? So you don't condition your forgiveness even if there's consequences that still have to be dealt with. Forgiven people forgive. Ken Sandy, another resource. We can't talk about conflict all in this time. Another resource to, to recommend to you, a book called Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It goes into way more detail on all this kind of stuff. I would highly recommend it. He said this, because Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, we should be the most forgiving people in the world as well. Forgiven people forgive. We're gonna sing in a few moments that song, Amazing Grace, and we're gonna sing the part that says, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My chains are gone, I've been set free. How many of you, when you've sang that song, you never raise your hands in worship? But when you sing that song, halfway, like my chains are gone, I've been set free, amazing grace. Like I can get behind that just a, just a little bit, like halfway. How many of you, you never cry, like ever in life? You never cry in worship, we sing that line. You start to think about your chains and your sin, and you think, I've been set free from that, and some salty residue comes out of your eye, right? Why? Because you know the freedom of having your debt, all of your sin, the sins you can remember, the sins you have forgotten, the sins you have committed, the sins you haven't done yet. You know the freedom and the fullness that comes with having all of that debt canceled. My sin is erased. My chains are gone. I've been set free. When you forgive somebody else, that's what you do for them. That's what you do for them. So don't condition it. Set somebody, you need to set somebody free today. Some of you need to stop nudging your spouse and instead set them free. And just say, hey, I forgive you. I don't know what it looks like yet to work through all the pain and the past hurt, but I want you to know I've canceled the debt. I'm not gonna hold that over your head anymore. Can you imagine the freedom? that would come with that, that you possess in Jesus Christ, him forgiving you, then you forgiving somebody else. You possess that today. Like you could go to somebody else today and say, I forgive you, and the chains would be gone and they would be set free. Don't hold that in. Don't condition your forgiveness. The last thing, don't give up trust in the Lord. Don't give up trust in the Lord. Psalm 37.3 says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Another great psalm to read, the whole chapter, Psalm 37, it goes on to say, to commit your way to the Lord, that he will vindicate, vindicate, he's in control, that he will bring resolution. God is a just God. He knows what's going on. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He knows the conflict. He knows what they said. He knows what they thought about you. He knows the gossip, and he's got you. Trust in the Lord, and don't give up. Many give up too soon when they're in the midst of conflict. They think, hey, I got this conflict with my friend, I'll find a new friend. I got this conflict with my spouse, I'll just find a new spouse. I mean, the world tells us this, right? Culture tells us this. Hey, girl, go get you somebody who appreciates you. Like, that man does not deserve you. And, and I got conflict in this friendship and this spouse. I got conflict in the church. I'll just find a new church. And, and you realize a couple things. The first thing you realize is the grass isn't greener on the other side. There's conflict with a new friend. There's conflict with a new spouse. There's conflict with a new church. Just breaking the news to you. The grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass is greener where you don't qualify your apology. 
The grass is greener where you don't condition your forgiveness. The grass is greener when you choose to overlook an offense because that's glorious to do. That's where the grass is greener. Find a new spouse, find a new friend, find a new church. Here's what you'll find. Different conflict. Different fires to put out, right? And again, our world knows this. That's why divorce is so hard and painful. You just find new conflict. That's why churches sometimes are so messy. You just find a new church. You just start all over, and they don't really know you. And it's harder to forgive because you don't even know the person. And so trust God. Don't give up. One of the reasons five years as a church is so special and people are getting choked up on stage and we're celebrating with cake and food and face painting and bounce houses. The reason why it's such a celebration is because we've endured conflict, because we didn't give up. We grew up in the midst of it and we said, I'm gonna apologize even when it's hard. I'm not gonna defend and deflect. I'm gonna repent and forgive and I'm gonna stay I was talking to somebody just the other day who said he was lamenting, just leaving his church after years. And he just said, hey, it was so hard. Like, we're still mourning that loss. And specifically, here's where we mourn the loss, is when sin pops up or, or strife pops up or sickness pops up. And, and I don't know who to go to anymore because I'm in a new church. They don't even know who I, I don't know who I can trust. And I'm starting all over. See, we miss out, when we hop out of conflict, we miss on, out on the beauty of longevity, of staying when it gets hard. Everybody else is gonna leave, your culture tells you to do that. What if you stayed and trusted God? And what if you became foxhole friends with some people who had been through everything thick and thin with you, who had apologized in a difficult moment, who had repented and forgiven you, who you cried together, you prayed together? And what if you stayed in your marriage what if you trusted God in that friendship? That's what God is calling us to do in biblical conflict resolution. I know relationships are hard. I, I know some of you are thinking about hardship in your relationship right now, and you're saying, Tim, what book is gonna cover, what resource is gonna cover, what quote you got from my conflict? Because I, I've tried some of these things, and this is hard. And Tim, it's easier to hop out. Like, I don't even see, like, I've gone through this list. I don't see a way to stay. And what I would say to you, again, abuse is different. I'm not talking about that. What I would say to you, trust God. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe he is just? Do you believe he knows your conflict? Can you trust God, Psalm 37, and continue to do good? Have you done that yet? If not, it's not time to give up. It's time to stay in the game. It's time to stay in that relationship. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Some of you are stuck in conflict. You're not blessed, you are bitter. You think you're holding something against somebody else. You're hurting somebody else. Hey, he betrayed my trust, so I'm gonna keep my distance. Hey, she said this, so I'm gonna show them passive aggressively. Hey, she said this, so I'm gonna say this. He did this, so I'm gonna do this back. I'm gonna repay evil for evil. And not only is the other person hurting, but you are as well. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who step out and go through a biblical conflict resolution. Some of you this morning, you're thinking of that conflict with that spouse. You're thinking of that conflict with that person. Do you know why you're thinking about that? The Holy Spirit has put that name in your mind, 
has put that instance, that conflict in your heart. And he's calling you this morning to begin to take steps to reconcile, to resolve it. Not by your own strength, but in the name and for the fame of Jesus Christ. So some of you have a name, you have a thing that you need to go out of here and you need to apply this. You can take a picture of all of these things. You can write every verse down and go back and read them and memorize them. But if you don't do them, it's not going to help you. If you don't do them, you're not going to endure it. If you don't do it, you're not going to see lasting and loving relationships in your life. But if you'll take a step, if you'll trust God and trust your case to him and begin to address conflict the way he wants you to address it, you can resolve it in the name of Jesus Christ. You can grow closer to him and to one another. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you just for this massive topic of conflict. I thank you for men and women who knew we were going to talk about this today and still came, who knew we were going to talk about this today and thought, okay, now I'm going to have to address this with my spouse because she's sitting right next to me. Now I'm going to have to address this with my friend because we, we both know something's off, and, and now I'm going to have to repent and forgive and God, I thank you for the courage of the men and women in this room to address conflict, address real conflict in their own life. And God, I pray that we would address it. God, biblically, we would address it, not taking our cues from ourselves or culture, but we would address it according to Christ. And God, I pray that you would give us an immeasurable amount of grace as we do that, that you would strengthen relationships, you would deepen them in beautiful ways. God, we would stay and see that happen. We wouldn't miss out on the beauty of longevity in relationships. And so I just, I pray over our marriages. I pray over our friendships. I pray, Jesus, you would help us. We desperately need your help in the midst of conflict. Jesus, you came to us. Scripture says, while we were still your enemies and you died for us, you gave to us. God, may we model May we represent you well. May as other people on the outside looking into the church see a people who aren't void of conflict, but see a people who address conflict in the power of Jesus Christ. And may that change the world. May that change other people. God, that's our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray.